Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. We are looking at the seventh Sunday of Easter for this upcoming weekend. It is the conclusion of the season of Easter. So the Easter season begins on Easter Sunday, uh, the third day after the death of Jesus on the cross. So you have Holy Week, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and then you get to Easter Sunday. Now, the Easter season lasts from that point all the way up and through the day of, well, not through, but up until the day of Pentecost, which is celebrated 50 days after Easter. So you just basically mark out seven weeks from the day of Easter to get yourself to Pentecost. So you have Easter and then six remaining Sundays afterwards that count as the second through seventh Sundays of Easter before Pentecost. Now in this week, as we look toward Pentecost, and we're going to see our readings help us to do that as well, but in this week we celebrate another important day. We celebrate the Ascension. So Pentecost is 50 days after Easter. The Ascension is 40 days after Easter. So if you're in, if you're already past the seventh Sunday of, of Easter, you've passed the Ascension as well. But the Ascension will always then, because it's 40 days, fall on a Thursday. Many churches, but not all, uh, will have a celebration of the Ascension. They'll have a worship service together on, on a Thursday afternoon or evening, and you can go to that as well. It is part of the creed that Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. And from thence, he will come to judge the living and the dead. So a couple of bigger moments coming up in the next week and a half or so on the church calendar. Uh, we will then celebrate Pentecost and then we get to celebrate Holy Trinity Sunday. So it, it's a time of, of some major days before it settles down again into the usually the summer months here. So our readings for the seventh Sunday of Easter, instead of an Old Testament, we remain in the book of Acts. Um, this is the last one for a while. We get to go back to the Old Testament readings starting next weekend. But we have Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. And then we have for the epistle, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, and chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. And then our gospel text is John chapter 17, verses 1 through 11. Now, I mentioned already that we're going to see our texts are actually trying to help prepare us for Pentecost that is coming up. And that's especially true of this first reading from the book of Acts. So the structure of the early part of the book of Acts, chapter 1, you see at the beginning of the chapter, Luke reintroducing that he's writing this, and then also uh, the account of the ascension into heaven and Jesus giving his disciples, the, the now apostles, that mission of remaining in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon them, which is, that again, that Pentecost reference. Then we have this interlude, uh, this moment that happens in between. Um, as those 10 days are passing, we get a little bit of that account, and that's what we'll read today. And after that, Peter and the events of Pentecost and his preaching are then going to come, the birth of the church. So this is the in-between stuff, in between Jesus' ascension and the actual day of Pentecost. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew. Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So, in this first section of our text for the day, we see the, the mount called Olivet, also known as the Mount of Olives. It has its name for really an obvious reason. This is a place where the, a lot of olives grew, and you're going to even have there 
than an olive press, a place where they would actually, the workers would bring the olives, they would press them, um, and it's believed that that is actually in the Garden of Gethsemane. So some connections here uh, to Holy Week from before, and those connections are going to continue a little bit as well. Now this is near Jerusalem, it's just a Sabbath day's journey away. That's a reference to a specific distance that one could travel on a Sabbath day. The Jewish uh, leaders, of uh, the religious leaders called the Pharisees, had created an entire system of laws about the Sabbath day. You can't do this without it being work. Um, so you can't walk too far or it will be work. You can't even take your, your fork from your plate to your mouth too many times or it will be work not fork, but your hand. So these kinds of ideas are commonplace for the, the people at the time. And so this reference of a Sabbath day's journey, it's simply known by the people. There was the regulation you couldn't walk more than 200 cubits from your home on the Sabbath. And our language today, that's roughly 3,000 feet, maybe 10% more than a half a mile, something like that, 60% of a mile. So it's not a far walk uh, from, from Jerusalem for that reason. Now, verse 13 says that they went into an upper room. It's quite possible that this is the same room that they were in for the Passover. As Jesus had told his disciples to, to find the man who had prepared his upper room for them, the guest room, um, this could be it. It may be a different place, but it's a possibility at least. And then we get the listing of the disciples, the 11 remaining apostles. So if you count, there are indeed 11 here. The one missing from the 12 is Judas Iscariot, because at this point he has already died. Um, we're going to see that mentioned in the next paragraph here. So we have 11 apostles. But it's not just the apostles who are gathering together. And they're doing so with one accord, so they're united in everything at this point. No division among them. And then they're also devoting themselves to prayer. This is a good thing. This is what Jesus taught them to do. Prayer shows that we are trusting in the Lord because we are taking our anxieties, our fears, our concerns to him. We are asking him to provide for our daily needs. We're asking him to protect us from temptation and the devil. This idea of prayer is a, a good and wonderful thing. It is really part of the core of our faith. We see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, uh, verses 16 through 18. As Paul writes, he says, Rejoice always, pray, sorry, pray without ceasing. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks to God. In all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Now, it's not just the 11 apostles that are gathered together. We see that there are women with them, uh, likely a reference to Mary Magdalene and a couple of the others uh, who we see are either there present at the time of the crucifixion or the resurrection. A few other ladies are named. And then we also get Mary, the mother of Jesus, who's there, and his brothers. So we have a, a group of people who have gathered together, not just the 11. And we're going to see in the next paragraph that that's even, even more, perhaps. So verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akel Damah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. So we have verse 15 giving us, In those days. That's going to be a reference to the idea here that we are 
somewhere in between the Ascension and Pentecost itself, somewhere in between 40 and 50 days after Christ had risen from the dead, is when Peter's going to to say this, and they're going to have this conversation and, and cast their lots. And now this standing up among the brothers, this is a different brothers than verse 14 had mentioned. This is no longer the brothers of Jesus. This is now the brothers who are the church. These are the, the followers of Christ. Luke gives us the note here that at this point, there's about 120 gathered together. Now, is this the size of the church pre-Pentecost, or is it still higher than this? It's it's hard to say for certain. We have a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's verse 6, where we learn from Paul that Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. It makes you think that the church's size is larger than 120. It's hard to say. I if that's the case, it could just be that not everyone here is gathered together at this moment for this. But at the same time, what they're about to do, picking another apostle, that's a major deal. So you would think that the majority of the church would be present for something like that. So I don't have a firm, solid answer for you about those numbers, but less than a thousand seems to certainly be, be the case for the size of the church before Pentecost. Now, as we look into verse 16, Peter begins to address them. He, he speaks, and he says that the scriptures had to be fulfilled. Every Old Testament prophecy comes true. This is just the way prophecy works. If it doesn't come true, it's not a true prophecy. It's a false prophecy, or if it comes from a false prophet. And our Lord the God who made heaven and the earth is not a false prophet. So any prophecy God has given to us is going to come true. And so that's what Peter's pointing at here. The Holy Spirit has spoken these things beforehand. And now he's going to get a little more specific. Through the mouth of David. David is the author, not of all, but of a significant portion of the book of Psalms. Uh, each Psalm is a, a hymn, a poem of its own. And David wrote many of them. And the two that will be quoted from in verse 20, um, Psalm 69, verse 25, and Psalm 109, verse 8, are a couple of Davids here. So David, writing concerning Judas. This is how prophecy ends up working. David doesn't know Judas. David doesn't know the things that he gets to speak on behalf of the Lord. As the Lord gives him utterance, so he speaks. And we see a little note about Judas, simply that he became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He was a guide. He knew where to go. The disciples with Jesus regularly would frequent the same places for rest. As you know from reading your gospel accounts, it wasn't easy for Jesus to find a place to rest. Not when he was a baby and not when he's a grown-up. That doesn't seem to change much in his life. It's, it's a difficult thing because the crowds are following him everywhere. And so the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives seems to be one of those places where the disciples could go and catch some rest. Uh, part of the conversation around Holy Week and that is that it wasn't the time for the harvesting of olives. And so the Garden of Gethsemane, that olive press site, would not have been full. It would have been empty. It would have been quiet and calm in a place where they could essentially hide uh, from the crowds so that they could get some respite. Now, Luke's going to end up giving us another note about Judas in verse 18. But verse 17 first, simply noting that Judas was one of the twelve. He was a disciple. He was a follower of Christ. He had his roles within that group of what he was supposed to do. One of those roles that we actually know from Scripture is that Judas was the one in charge of maintaining the money bag, uh, the, the disciples' collection of funds that they would use to care for themselves, buy food, um, but also uh, serve their neighbor with. So Judas had that function at least how all the functions got divided up of work amongst the 
apostles. We don't actually know, but we know that one. Now, as we continue on, verse 18, Luke is going to give us this kind of a side note about what happens with the death of Judas. Uh, it's a twofold thing. So you've got the purchase of land. And it's an indirect purchase. Judas doesn't make the purchase, but he acquires 30 pieces of silver for his betrayal of Jesus. And then, after the events start to unfold and he realizes that the Jews intend to kill Jesus, Judas repents. He takes the money back. He, he gives his, his confession of sin to the priests. He throws the money at them, and he's and and their response is so sad. What is that to us? See to it yourself. Judas went to the place confessing of his sins that he should have gone. I mean, when we think of repentance today and confessing our sins, you go to your priest, you go to your pastor to confess your sins, you go to the church. In a way, that's what he did. But the Pharisees are the wrong church. They don't have what Jesus was giving. They don't have the grace of God. They don't have that gift of forgiveness that Christ alone can give. And so their response to Judas is, well, it's fair in, in the sense that when we're left to our own devices, which they were and he was, that's all we can do. And so he's lost to his despair. And he, he ends up committing suicide. So we have Judas returning the money. The, the, the council, the Jewish ruling council there, they use that money. They don't put it back into their, their coffers. They use it instead to buy a field with it which is ends up a fulfillment of prophecy in and of itself. In that field, we learn in Matthew 27, verse 8, is going to be the burial place for strangers. So uh, it comes to be known as the field of blood or a keldamah. Now, the other note here is that Judas falls and bursts open and his, his insides come out. This is not necessarily in conflict with what Matthew recorded in chapter 27. So you can read this account, Matthew 27, verses 3 through 8. And there you learn that Judas hanged himself. Now, it is possible easily for these two statements to both be true. That Judas hung himself and then kind of gross to think about, but after some period of time, whether it was a few days or whatever it may have been, um, the rope snaps, finally gives way, and he falls to the ground. And the body having begun to deteriorate and decay, these things could possibly, again, both easily fit together and be true. So don't overthink that one. And, you know, unless you're really into that kind of thing. So <laughs> verse 20 uh, the two different prophecies from the book of Psalms. May his camp become desolate, so may it become cut off. There will be no, no inheritance there. You know, you think of the camps of Israel, the tribes of Israel. They had descendants that kept the tribe going. There is no such thing for Judas Iscariot. His, his family ends with him. There's no one to dwell in it. And then secondly, from Psalm 109, verse 8, let another take his office. So he was one of the 12 apostles, uh, and it's time to replace him in that list to return to 12. And that's what the conversation is going to then turn to in our final paragraph of the book of Acts reading. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Eustace, 
and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Verse 21 is an interesting note. It's hard to tell how many people are following Jesus in his three-ish years of earthly ministry. From time to time, it seems like it's a lot, and at other points, it seems like it's hardly anyone. You get to the point of the, the feeding of the, I believe it's the 5,000. John chapter 6, Jesus ends up interacting with them and teaching the crowds that they were following him. They wanted him to be their bread king after that wondrous miracle. And after all of his teaching happens, everyone leaves. The crowds disperse, and Jesus turns to the twelve and asks them if they want to leave too. So, yeah, it, there's varying numbers of people following Jesus at any given point in those three years. But it does appear from what Peter says here that there are at least a, a group of people um, there are a handful, maybe more, of other men who have been present for the majority of that time, uh, coming and going together, uh, learning, and they're just not part of that group of 12. So the 12 are kind of the head of the disciples, the, the main central group. And then there were some others who, who kind of came and went and attached themselves to this. They got to see and hear so much of what Jesus did and taught. The group here identifies two of these men in particular with the intention of making one of them take that last spot of the twelve. As Peter phrases it, a witness to his resurrection. Now, the resurrection is the key event. I mean, if there is no resurrection, we have no faith. So that's an important thing to remember. Uh, Christ risen from the dead is at the core of the Christian's faith. Because he lives, you also will live. Part of our gospel text from the previous weekend here. Now, the way Peter phrases this is interesting. They can't become a witness to his resurrection. Not in the sense that we normally think of that phrase meaning they either are a witness of it or they aren't. They either saw him raise, raised from the dead or they didn't. So what Peter's language here is implying instead is the idea that the, the witness is the one who gives the testimony. That these apostles have this special, specific calling by Jesus to go out and testify, give an account, witness to what they have seen. That isn't to say that other people who saw the risen Christ shouldn't be doing that too. Everyone who has faith in Christ should be sharing Christ with their neighbor. But there's a role here for an apostle. And so Peter is saying they're calling, another, they're calling one of these two men into that office. That special task that Christ has given to them. And so there are two men. One of them has three names. Uh, some know him as Joseph, others as Eustace, and others as Barsabbas. This is not Barnabas, who traveled with Paul in the book of Acts. This is not Barabbas, who the crowds chanted for his release on Good Friday instead of Jesus. Very similar names to us in English. This is, this is Barsabbas. He's never mentioned again in Scripture. Doesn't show up anywhere else. But as one of the people, one of the brothers, one of the people in the church, and of importance enough that he was considered for this role of apostle, he certainly would have had, he would have been known by the brothers in the church in the early days and maybe well known. He himself could have had quite an interesting life to, if we, if we had it recorded to be able to learn about. But the text won't go there. Instead, we get the other guy, Matthias, and he's the one that will end up being chosen. And there's not much in here about him either. Verse 24, they prayed. So we saw that up in verse 14 to start. Uh, they are focused on being 
in prayer, devoting themselves to prayer. And so here they pray. They are trusting in the Lord and in his work. And in Peter's prayer and their prayer, they say that the Lord knows the hearts of all. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He can read the mind or the heart, whichever one you want to say. He knows this. He knows these men and he can choose between the two of them which one would be better fit for this apostleship. Who does he want to send into this mission? This is also a matter of pastoral care uh, as we think about it today. I am not omniscient. I don't know your heart. So I take you at your word. But the Lord does know your heart. He knows your sins. He knows your confessions. He knows of your sorrow and your regret and your repentance. Or he knows of your lack thereof. And so the Lord can deal with his people how he sees fit. Because he truly knows us. And so they cast their lots, uh, the Holy Spirit leading these stones to fall in a particular manner. And the lot falls on Matthias. And he's numbered with the 11. So 11 plus 1 equals 12. And we're back to 12. 12 is the number of the church in Scripture. If you look to the Old Testament, there are the 12 tribes of Israel. So God's people, God's holy people, are the 12 tribes of Israel. In the New Testament, God's holy people is the church, here now represented by the 12 disciples, and at this point, the 12 apostles. So the, the number 12 is the number of the church in Scripture. Uh, last note on the book of Acts text today. Verse 26, the casting of lots, that's the last time we see lots cast in Scripture. As the Holy Spirit is the one who guides the casting of lots, um, the Lord's will being done, on Pentecost the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church. The casting of lots ceases, at least in the recording of history at that point. As we turn to our epistle text, 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 through 19, and chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, again, the reminder with Peter's epistle here is that he's writing to a group of Christians in Rome who have been suffering the Roman emperor's persecution. And we're going to see notes of that that really parallel uh, for them. But the, the overall theme of the letter comes through pretty clearly in this little section alone. Because, again, the goal here for P Peter as he writes to them is to encourage them to remain steadfast in their faith and to see that their suffering in this life helps them to see Jesus. My suffering now points me to the suffering of Christ. It's actually a good thing. It's a blessed thing to suffer because it shares us with Jesus and his sufferings. It points us to what he has done for us, calls us out of ourself and to look to Christ. And then the second part of the theme of the letter is that it points you to the need to serve your neighbor with this same gospel through that time of suffering. So we're going to see all of that coming through in this brief part of the text. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So in this first paragraph here, this first part of the text, in verse 12, don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes. Don't be surprised when you suffer. Don't be surprised when you endure pain. Why? 
Because it's common. And this is our common lot. This is what happens. Again, I would point you to Jesus' teaching in the book of John, around chapter 16 or 17 there, as he speaks to his disciples and tells them that the world is going to hate them because the world hated him. And this is why the disciples end up hiding and in fear after the crucifixion. The world just crucified their leader. What are they going to do to them? This is the way the life of the Christian looks. It is indeed a life filled with suffering, enduring the, the, the sorrows cast upon us by the world around us. The world hates Jesus. And you look around. Look around at your culture. I'm going to assume most people listening are living in the United States, but there are people listening elsewhere as well. In some places, that, that idea that the Christian will suffer is, well, yeah, of course, Pastor. It's just normal. That's what we experience every day. In America, people have been hoodwinked. They've been deceived to think that it's not like that. We've lived a life of comfort instead. But in that life of comfort, as we have become more and more like the world, many have lost their faith. So it's a, a note that's worth remembering. There's a reason that we suffer. This fiery trial. It connects back to chapter 1, verse 7. To test you. The idea of, of gold being refined by fire is used in that, that first chapter of the book. The Lord works through suffering to strengthen you and your faith. And so if you live a life free of suffering, your faith doesn't get sharpened. This is not to say go out and seek suffering. Because when you suffer, it's at the hands of, an, of a neighbor and your neighbor, therefore, is sinning by causing you to suffer. We don't want to cause our neighbor to sin. So don't go out seeking suffering. Suffering will find you. If you're doing what God has given you to do, if you're living a life that is faithful to God, if you're sharing the gospel with your neighbors, you're going to suffer. So don't search for it, but just know it's coming. Expect it. That's the message going on here. Um, the fiery trial, that word is not a reference to hell, although it is used a couple of other times in, in the New Testament, and those are in the book of Revelation, and those are a reference to hell. Here it's not. This is simply a reference to the idea of the pain and the suffering that we endure in this, this life. The move Peter makes here, in the next couple of verses is going to be very similar to the move we see Paul make so famously in Romans chapter 6. So Paul says that you have been buried with Christ in his death. So baptism buries you in Jesus' death, and because it unites you with Christ in his death, it also unites you with Christ in his resurrection. So there's that twofold move. Because you share in his death, you share in his resurrection. Peter is going to make a very similar move. Because you share in Christ's suffering, you also share in his glory. It's a wonderful point here for us to consider. So verse 13. This is the, the bold message of the, of the, I can't call it a gospel, of the epistle. But gospel means good news. And this is good news that we have Christ and we have the salvation he offers us. But this is... This is the bold message of the epistle. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. We don't tend to think that way. We don't like to suffer. We don't rejoice in our sufferings, but we are called to rejoice in suffering because you are sharing the lot of Jesus. And there is nothing better than sharing the lot of Jesus. Right? That's our goal. That's our hope. 
is that we get to share with Jesus in eternity. He is God in the flesh. He is the one who has created the world and everything in it. He is the one who is in charge. He is king, enthroned above all things, and he has the inheritance. The Father gives the inheritance to the Son. The Father has established him, given him the rule over all. And you, as his as his family, as his brothers and sisters, or as his bride, whichever image you want to use, you share in his inheritance. What is his is yours. We want to share in the lot of Christ, and that does include his suffering. Because by sharing in his suffering, our faith is strengthened. We are pointed to Christ again and again. Instead of our own sinful nature and our own desires, we're pointed back to Christ. We're pointed to prayer, which points us to Christ. Because we share in the suffering, we also get to share, we also get to rejoice on the day when his glory is revealed. And that's a reference to the last day, to the second coming of Christ, when he comes back into his creation All the graves are opened. He raises everyone from the dead, and he gives life everlasting to those who have shared in his lot. So, again, Peter's words of encouragement to a suffering Christian church in Rome, profound, deep, incredible stuff. Verse 14 insulted for the name of Christ. You're blessed. Again, we don't look at it this way. We don't our sinful nature doesn't think of it this way. But this is what we saw last week. Um, the idea that you, we would suffer for doing good, not evil. This is what we saw in the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, specifically verses 10 through 12, this idea is mentioned there. It comes up there that if you are insulted, if when you're persecuted on account of Jesus' name, you are blessed. And here's the why. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Look, if you're insulted for the name of Jesus, it means you have the name of Jesus. If you're persecuted for sharing Christ, it means you have Christ. The Holy Spirit is upon you. You have faith. And if you have faith, you have the promises. They are true, not only for you, but of you. So much gospel in here. So much. Even in the midst of suffering. More so, because of the suffering, we have Good news, which again doesn't make sense to the sinful nature, but it is the way God teaches us. So verse 15 is a reminder, not not suffering deservedly. We don't want to suffer for doing evil. We're all sinners and we suffer for doing evil anyway, but um, we want to live our lives in such a way uh, that we are, are well known by our neighbors. And... That's a risky way to say that. You don't live so that your neighbor knows you well. But you live on their their account. You live for their sake. And so you are living to serve. When you become a Christian, you don't just disappear from the earth. Oh, his goal's met. Let's take him home. That's not how it works. God leaves you here so that you can share that gospel with others. And so we do. We, we want to live in such a way that we love our neighbor, we serve our neighbor, and they see that in us, and they it's going to give the opportunity for us to share the gospel with them. That's the hope that we have in this life, in living this life. And that comes through in verse 16. If you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. You know, if, if you're insulted because you believe in Jesus, don't be ashamed. Don't put your head down. Don't despair. Glorify God in that name. Share the gospel. We are called 
in the midst of our suffering, very specifically, to glorify God, that is to give glory to God, that is to point others to God. So when someone is insulting you, share Jesus with them. Share the hope that is in you. That was the last chapter last week. When someone is beating you, don't turn quickly to self-defense. Show them that you love them. More than they could possibly deserve. Tell them of Jesus. We see this with the apostles as they're thrown into prison. They end up singing hymns and telling the prison guards about Christ. They have an opportunity at one point in the book of Acts to break free and to run away. And they remain. And they get to baptize the prison guard and his family. Verses 17 through 19 go very well together to teach us this, again, this theme of the letter, which is that we would love our neighbor by sharing the gospel with them. So in verse 17, the judgment of the Christian, we know what that outcome is. That the Lord looks upon us, he sees Christ, his son's righteousness, and he welcomes us into his kingdom. But then the verse changes. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And we know the answer to that question. Their outcome is hell. It is a death, a gruesome, eternal death. And we see this in verse 18 now. The righteous is scarcely saved. This is Proverbs 11.31, by the way. Uh, we suffer, we die. Uh, the narrow path is, is narrow indeed. What becomes of the ungodly? Again, we know the answer. And it's not good, it's hell. And so Peter then encourages us in 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So those who suffer, all of Peter's hearers, everyone hearing this epistle, mm -hmm. suffering at the hands of Rome, entrust your souls to God, the faithful creator. Trust God. He will care for you. He will deliver you. May not look like what the earthly, the sinful nature wants, but he will deliver you. He will provide for you. He is preparing a place for you in paradise, even now, even as you hear this today, while doing good, loving their neighbors. And that's the why. You know your neighbor is bound for hell because they have rejected the good news of Jesus Christ. They've rejected God's forgiveness. They've rejected his grace. And so the way that we love them is that we go about living our lives, serving them as best we can, no matter the circumstances. We humble ourselves. It's going to be the next verse that we read. We humble ourselves and we serve our neighbor so that there are opportunities to share the good news with them again and again. We keep trying. Many of you have lived this, especially in your own families, with your grown children, with a spouse, with a parent, aunts, uncles, cousins, you, you name it. Many of you have lived this, that you continue to love them. You continue to serve them. You continue to tell them about Christ. You continue to invite them to come to church with you. And it hurts. But some of you have seen it happen, where through your constant loving and constant serving and constant sharing of Christ with them, some of you have had the fortune of being able to see them in Christ. And as paradise comes someday, you will get to see them there. And that was your hope all along. That was your aim all along. We are taught to do this, not just for the members of our household. We are taught to love all of our neighbors this way. And it's a tall job. There are probably five, six billion people on the earth right now who aren't Christians. 
we have lots of neighbors on the the broad and wide path to to destruction uh, that we are called to care for. We have more than enough to do. This is Peter's message. Verse 19 summarizes this pretty well. Entrust their souls to God and do good. We'll look at the chapter 5 section. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That makes it sound like it's the end of the epistle. It isn't quite. There's a last few verses of greetings that, that Peter sends along. Uh, so I think it's three verses remaining in the, in the book. So we just talked about humbling ourselves. And we're doing it under the mighty hand of God. That's an important note. Under the hand of God. What has the mighty hand of God done? What does he do? And you can find references to this in scripture, both to support the idea that his mighty hand saves you, his righteous right arm, um, the right arm, the the weapon holding and brandishing arm of the Lord, uh, and that weapon being Jesus as he sends his word down into his creation to defeat sin, death, and the devil for us. And then also, the idea of provision and care as you think of your own works of your hands and you care for your family. So the Lord has created and cares for us. So we humble ourselves under the Lord's mighty hand, knowing that he has created us, saved us, and continues to provide for us. We humble ourselves. We think less of ourselves. We don't look to ourselves and instead we look to others And then we get this in verse 6, so that he may exalt you. And there's a double meaning to this word exalt here. So the word exalt itself means to lift something up. Being exalted at the proper time here is two different things. The resurrection is certainly in mind. At the proper time, Christ will raise you from the dead. Or if you haven't died yet, when he returns, Christ will raise you unto new life, a newly glorified um, body and soul anyway. But the other side to this is going to continue to show up elsewhere in the letter as well. And that is that the idea that um, as you've humbled yourself, you've made yourself low, God can exalt you now. He can lift you up now in the presence of your neighbor. He can lift you up, bringing respect in their eyes and allowing that chance to speak. The humble servant can be exalted in this world and in this life. Doesn't happen often in our culture, but it does happen. And the Lord can certainly make it happen in the presence of your enemy, your persecutor. You can be lifted up so that they can see the light of Christ. Verse 7 continues that, casting all of our anxieties on him, Because he cares for you. He cares for you. The God who created all of this, the God who continues to uphold the universe by the power of his spoken word, the God who has defeated sin, death, and the devil for you, he cares for you. I'll let you stop and think about that for a moment. What do you have to worry about? He'll care for you. Verse 8, we are reminded three times in this letter to be sober-minded. And this is not not a reference to being drunk with alcohol. It's a general drunkenness with our sinful nature. Now, does alcohol fit there? Yes, drunkenness with alcohol is a sin. 
drunkenness with just about anything is a sin. And here, uh, the idea is that your your sinful nature, being so lost in your idols or so lost in, in the ways of this world, you would take your mind off of the warfare that is going on around you. That's the very next part. You want to be sober-minded. Why? So you can be watchful. Why? What do you need to be watching for? Well, here it is. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. This is the image of the persecution in Rome where the Romans were literally throwing Christians to the lions. And it's not the first time in history, it's not the last time in history. But we are to humble ourselves before the Romans. We are to humble ourselves before the persecutors in hopes that we might be exalted and have the chance to share the glory of Christ with those people. But... Peter is pointing out that the true adversary is not the Roman, it's not the lion, it's the devil, as he is looking to destroy you, to strip you off the narrow path, to remove you from the the glory and the suffering of Christ. We are called to resist him. And then the Again, persecuted church that Peter is writing to here are reminded, kind of encouraged to not be tempted in this. They are reminded that the sufferings they are experiencing are occurring to their brothers throughout the world. The brotherhood is a reference to the church. You could go west towards Rome. You could go south um, towards Africa. You could go east over um, into the some of the more unknown land at that point. You could go out to the southeast, uh, back towards Jerusalem. Christians around the world are being persecuted. This is true even to this day. It looks different in different places, but we're suffering. We're suffering on account of the name of Christ. Because the world hates him, it hates us. Verse 10, after you've suffered a little while... That's a reference to this life. It's not, you know, for a week. It's this life. But that is a little while in the concept of eternity. You get to live forever. After the resurrection, after the last day, you're going to live a billion years. Compare that billion years to your hundred years here. It's nothing. Oh, wait a second. A billion years is nothing. It hasn't even started to scratch the surface. You live forever in Christ. So, suffered a little while. The God of all grace who has called you. So, God of all grace, he has given you forgiveness and life. He has given you all the good gifts that he has to give. And he has called you. That's baptism as he adopts you into his family as his son or his daughter. He will, and this is a progressive thing here, he will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So he's going to restore you. He's going to rescue you from your sins. He's going to confirm you. So he's going to really build you up into that that faith. He's going to confirm that you are his child. So he's forgiven you. He's made you his child. And now he strengthens you, he up, he builds you up, he encourages you in your faith. And then he establishes you. I mean, you think of the idea of establishing a building or establishing a tree. You plant a tree. God is planting you in paradise. It's really a neat move, uh, those four words right next to each other from Peter. And then finally, to him be dominion. Dominion is the idea of rule or reign. Let God reign. I've been really doing a poor job these last few weeks of leaving myself any time to share the gospel with you. (laughs) Thankfully, it's the gospel text, um, as we have been speaking about the gospel in the earlier texts as well. The gospel is simply the idea of the good news um, that is Jesus Christ, and that comes throughout Scripture. The Old Testament has lots of gospel in it. The epistles have lots of gospel in them. We call the four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel But rightly, they're called gospel accounts. And there's only one gospel, not four. And each of those books in the Greek text is actually called the gospel according to Mark, 
or the gospel according to John. And so you'll even hear that in Lutheran churches that do the liturgy. Um, oftentimes they'll introduce, they'll say the Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, uh, the, the 17th, sorry, there aren't 17 chapters, the 13th chapter. Um, so these are gospel accounts of the life and the ministry of Jesus that we see. And so here, we, today we're in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. John chapter 17 is often known as, and even subtitled in your Bible likely, the High Priestly Prayer. This is still uh, during the events of Holy Week. In fact, all of chapters 13 through 17 are happening during the time of Holy Week. As Jesus is teaching his disciples, uh, it's quite possible, and chapter 18, verse 1 even suggests that this is the case, that all of this is the conversation the disciples are having over the Passover celebration. As they're in the upper room eating the Passover feast together, uh, as Christ is getting ready to share the Lord's Supper with them for the first time, that they are hearing all these teachings from Jesus in that period. And so now chapter 17 is this great prayer that the Lord offers up on our behalf. So that's your context here. Now, Father, the hour has come. This is, again, this is Holy Week. This is time for his death on the cross. The, the reason he has come into the world, it's time. You can compare that to John 2, 4, where uh, it's the wedding feast at Cana. They've run out of wine and his mother comes up to him and, and tells him that they're out and his response to her is somewhere along the lines of, my hour has not yet come. What do you want me to do? This is, this is a very contrasting part here. The hour wasn't, wasn't there yet, but now the hour has come. Jesus wasn't going to shed his blood at Cana. It wasn't time for that. But now it is. Glorify means to point to. Um, if you look it up in a dictionary, you might read something about honor, um, and that, that's fair. Um, but pointing to is a helpful way to think about it as well. Glorify your son. Point, point people in the world to Jesus. Jesus glorifies the Father. Jesus points us to the Father. He brings us back to the Father. There's a, there's a helpful way to think about this word glory for us. Um, Jesus has been given authority from the Father so that he would be able to give us life. The Father has given us to him. The Father entrusts us to Jesus. And this, verse 3, this is eternal life. So what is life? This is a key thing here. What is life, according to Jesus? That they know you. Life, according to Jesus, is knowing the Father. There are many people in this world right now who are living who aren't actually alive. There is no life apart from God. This connects very well when you go back to the Garden of Eden as well. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. The knowledge, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the temptation from the devil that they would take from that tree that would come in chapter 3. They knew God. They had the knowledge of good. They were alive, and all was well. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Verse 4, Jesus has been glorifying God while he was here. His three years of ministry, he was pointing people, he was restoring people to the Father. 
That's the purpose of his ministry. His death and his resurrection point us to God. He restores us to God. That's the work that God gave him to do. And now, uh, the second part of that verse, or actually, sorry, verse 5 here, Jesus prays that the Father would glorify him with the glory he had before the world existed. In other words, <laughs> make things the way they once were when everything was perfect, except now Jesus is including us in that because we weren't there before when it was just God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfection. Jesus wants us to be a part of that perfect place, that perfect life that only comes in and through him. And then lastly, on that paragraph there, that Jesus was there with God the Father before the world existed. This is a huge note. I was just reading something again the other day, more accusations from the world that, that Jesus hasn't always been considered God, that, that Christians made it up in the 4th century at the Council of Nicaea. That's where we decided to worship Jesus as though he's God. And that's a bunch of hooey, to use a technical term. <laughs> I mean, we have a, a, a writing, um, it almost sounds like it was a, an expedition. The Roman emperor at the end of the first century, it sounds like he had sent Pliny the Younger to investigate the Christian church and find out what was going on. Because we have this letter from Pliny the Younger back to the emperor laying out the practices of the early Christian church. If you hear that somebody in your kingdom is a cannibal, you're concerned about that. And so that's the main, seems to be the central theme of that letter is that the Christians weren't actually cannibals. They were eating food together daily, but it was food of an ordinary kind. I shouldn't say daily. I think Pliny was writing weekly, the first day of the week. They met in the morning. They sang hymns together to, to Jesus as though to a God. Pliny the Younger at the end of the first century in a hostile, persecuted environment for the Christian church is writing the emperor saying that the Christians are worshiping Jesus as a god. So no, the fourth century Christian church did not make up Jesus' divinity. Didn't happen. That's a historical nonsense. First century Christians already believed Jesus was God. And the scriptures certainly teach that way. And this is part of it. Jesus predates creation. John chapter 1, Jesus is even the one who creates. As we think of God creating, it's God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Nothing was made that he did not make. Jesus predates creation, so he can't be created. Or he wouldn't predate creation. In the beginnings, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the world. Jesus predates that. All right, verses 6 through 11, finishing the text. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verses 6 and 7 and even 8 here, getting into the idea of verse 4, kind of sharing with us what verse 4 was talking about. So verse 4, that Jesus accomplished the work the Father gave him to do. Well, what was that work? Here you go, verses 6 through 8. Jesus has manifested God's name to us. He has kept us in the word. Um, he has given us all the things that God gave for him to give to us. Those kinds of statements here, 6 through 8. So he's made known, he's revealed, he's manifested God's name to his people. We are his. We belong to the Lord. We have kept his word. We've had faith. We've had trust. Verse 9, Jesus is praying for us. Not the world. That's the next line. 
He's praying for the faithful. The faithful are the people of God. And it is for us that Jesus prays. To know that Jesus is praying for you is an incredibly comforting thing. And it really is the gospel itself. When we think about what prayer is, prayer talking to God. So God talking amongst himself, sometimes people will describe that as prayer. That's fair. So God talks, Jesus talks to the Father for you on your behalf, as he will do on Judgment Day as well. Jesus prays for you. That's the high priestly prayer here. Jesus is praying for you, for his disciples. That's going to come across in verse 11. And the prayer here, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. That's the next section of the prayer. It's going to move into covering that idea that we are in the world, but not of the world, that we are. He, he's praying for God to protect us from the world and to keep us faithful. Not safe, but faithful. Giant difference between those two things. There is no idea of safety in the New Testament here. Jesus is no longer in the world. He's about to die and rise again and ascend. His days are limited the next well, at this point, next 52, 53 days or so. Um, no, that's Pentecost. 42, 43 days or so until the ascension. So he is no longer in the world, but we are. We remain here um, for the time being. And I am coming to you. In verse 11, there is a reference to the ascension. And then a prayer to the Father, again, that he would keep us in his name. Keep us faithful. And it ends, the section ends, the prayer continues, but the, the section ends that they may be one even as we are one. God the Father and Son are one. Jesus is praying that we as the church would be one with each other and also with, with him. One family, together, in Christ. Amen. Amen.